Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. In this episode, a recording of the plenary at the 29th Irish Conference of Medievalists, which took place in University College Dublin in July 2015. The paper, Columbanus and the Practice of Penance in Early Medieval Europe, was given by Dr. Rob Maines from Utrecht University. The paper is introduced by Dr. Elva Johnston from UCD School of History and Chair of the Irish Conference of Medievalists Organising Committee. This year, 2015, is the 1400th anniversary of the death of Columbanus in 615. Columbanus is the most famous Irish cleric to leave Ireland in a form of religious exile, usually referred to as peregrinatio or pilgrimage. He attracted the patronage and opposition of various kings in the course of a very tumultuous career, founding important monasteries at Anagray, Luxoy and Bobbio. He was an abbot, a writer and a politician. Columbanus also contributed to the development of penance, a very important issue for early Christians who were deeply concerned with how to negotiate a safe passage to heaven. How could they find that road again after straying into sin? This has been a year of commemorating Columbanus and all his aspects. We were lucky to have Dr Rob Maines as our plenary speaker for the 29th Irish Conference of Medievalists, an expert on penance and on Columbanus. Dr Maines lectures in the Department of History and Art History in the University of Utrecht. He has numerous publications both in Dutch and English and is internationally recognised as the leading expert on early medieval penance and penitential practice. His recent book, Penance in Medieval Europe, 600 to 1200, published only last year, looks set to become the standard text for years to come. I would like to thank UCD Seed Funding and the UCD College of Arts and Celtic Studies for sponsoring this plenary. It is with great pleasure, therefore, that I introduce Dr Maines and his paper entitled Columbanus and the Practice of Penance in Early Medieval Europe. Thanks very much uh, for these kind words. Uh, And I want to thank the organisers in the first place uh, for inviting me here and for putting together such a really rich programme of which I profited a lot. Thanks a lot for all the work that you put into that. This year we started, we are celebrating, as already mentioned, the 1400th birthday of the Irish saint Columbanus, who then left his earthly wanderings behind, I think, and passed to the other world, where, according to his earlier followers, he would finally say, uh, he would finally, one could say, find eternal rest in a world where he would be welcomed by the martyrs and other saints. And I chose this picture not only because it's the front cover of my uh, book on penance, but also because you can see very nicely uh, where Columbanus would be, uh, according to his followers, and where some of the sinners would be as well among those I think, rather cute little devils down there. (laughs) Okay, uh, I do not need to recall for this audience, I think, uh, all the details of Columbanus' life, but let me briefly recall the following. He was born in Lenzo in the middle of the 6th century, educated in the monastery of Bangor, and in around 590, he then started his peregrinatio into Gaul. He founded in the Vosges region uh, the monastery of Luxeuil, which came, quickly became too, too small. And there were so many people coming, flocking to him, um, so he had to found two other monasteries, Annegret and Fontaine. And we have heard in this conference that there was a lot of interesting archaeological 
uh, research going on at the moment which contradicts the vita written by uh, Jonas of Bobbio. Although I think in Colin Bernas' time there would be bears and wolves in that region, as uh, Jonas of Bobbio tells us. Um, but these people, uh, Jonas of Bobbio, the geographer of Columbanus, uh, stresses were attracted by the medicamenta penitentia, the, the remedies of penance. And that is what I want to talk today uh, about today. Uh, Columbanus got a conflict with, he, 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 in, in, during his life, he ran into many conflicts with many people. Uh, but with the Frankish bishops of the date of Easter, for example, something which his geographer does not tell us, uh, a conflict with the Merovingian kings of Burgundy, Theodoric II, uh, and that last conflict uh, was the cause that he had to leave Burgundy, he had to leave his monasteries behind, and he was exiled back to Ireland. Uh, that somehow did not work. He managed to escape. Uh, and he made, a tra- he made a grand tour to the Lake of Constance and then to northern Italy, where he founded the monastery of Bobbio in 613, and two years later he died, so 1,400 years ago. Luckily, the monks of Bobbio did have a great interest in preserving his literary legacy, his, the text that Columbanus had written, and therefore we have his letters for a great part, we have poems written by uh, Columbanus, although there is debate about the authenticity of some of them. We have two monastic rules that he wrote. Uh, we have 10 or 11 sermons that he wrote. There's also debate about the authenticity of that, but I think that has settled now. Um, and he wrote a penitential book. And the last one, uh, the last text, uh, I will be talking about a little bit more in detail uh, later on. Let's have a look at the man first. This is a picture that we've already uh, been shown during this conference. The holy man, I think a charismatic holy man. Uh, I think Jean-Michel showed us the the organizing committee in 1915. This is the organizing committee in in 2015. Uh, You should compare the two. There's no Robert Schumann of of somebody of that status among this group, I'm afraid. But okay. Okay. and here we have an impression of the town of Bobbio um, with an Irish kind of weather, I would say. Yeah? <laughs> okay, uh, this is uh, Walker's edition of the works of Columbanus himself. So it's a, it's a, a volume uh, here edited in Dublin by the Institute. Uh, but that's an impressive uh, collection of texts, I think, uh, and a wonderful collection of texts uh, with uh, interesting, all kinds of interesting uh, questions. Um, an inter- introduction to this work, Walker wrote auricular confession and private penance, so characteristic of subsequent devotion, took their origin from the practice of Luxeuil, so the monastery founded by uh, Columbanus, and there is scarcely one European penitential which does not show some trace of Irish influence. It was with this citation that the late Raymond Cotier opened his contribution to the edited collection Ireland and Europe, published in 1982, a contribution that still provides an excellent overview uh, of the dissemination of Irish penitential books on the European mainland. My contribution today uh, should be regarded partly as an update to 
and reassessment of Koch's fundamental essay. Although carefully qualifying Walker's statement by drawing attention to some form of Iromania in Walker's view, so a too positive view of the Irish contribution to Western civilization, uh, Koch fully endorsed Walker's assertion that a radical new departure in the pastoral, uh, pastoral practice of hearing confession, assigning penances, and reconciling sinners had its roots in Ireland. This Irish pastoral practice was then disseminated throughout Europe by means of Irish and later Anglo-Saxon peregrini and missionaries, radiating from the earliest known Irish foundation, the Monastery of Luxeuil founded in the late 6th century by Columbanus. The manuscripts of Irish penitential books, the dissemination of which Kortje charted with great precision, revealed the activities of centres of Irish influence on the European mainland, such as Brittany, Salzburg, St. Gaul, or Bobbio. Kortje subscribed to the then prevailing view that the Irish invented a new form of penance, which differed from the late antique formal ritual of public penance, by which sinners were first separated from and later formally reconciled to the Christian community in an elaborate liturgical setting. This new insular form of penance was less formal, less public, and therefore it came to be considered as private penance. For Walker and Koche, and many others of course, the Irish invented private penance. Now it is undeniable that in the insular world in the 6th century, a new sort of text developed, the Handbook for Confessors, or the Libri Penitentialis. And these books were indeed transmitted to the European mainland by Columbanus and his followers and blossomed in the Carolingian age. This indicates that something was indeed changing and that the Irish, if I may put it that way, but perhaps it's better to say churchmen stemming from an array of different ecclesiastical traditions that were connected to, but certainly not confined to Ireland, uh, these people contribute, contributed to a period of transforming penance. Yet to view this as an invention of private penance is, to my mind, much too teleological. Even if Irish penitential books contributed to the development of private penance in later centuries, for which I see no convincing evidence, actually, there is no reason to assume that penance, as it was practiced in Ireland in the early period, was seen as private. Actually, there is no notion of private penance in any early insular source. Moreover, I think that the idea that there was a single form of public penance in the late antique world uh, that was then replaced by private penance is misleading. There are many indications that penance could take many different shapes and forms in the period before the year 600. In other words, the distinction between public and private penance is much too simplistic and does not correspond with the complex reality of the past. And in this contribution, I will first briefly re review what recent research has contributed to the knowledge of the transmission of insular, insular penitential books on the continent, and then I will assess what was new about the Irish ways of dealing with sinners and what impact the Irish might have had in Francia. So, what is new in regards to the text themselves? And I want to say a little bit more about the context in which these texts then have functioned, to my mind, in Ireland and later on uh, on the continent. Uh, the Irish penitentials have been edited and translated in 1963 
by Ludwig Bieler for the series Scriptoris Latini Hiberniae, which remains the standard edition to this day, although not all of the text edited there can be regarded as Irish. And I thought it was rather interesting, actually. Now I came to think about it, because I was thinking, why on earth am I invited to say something about Irish penance in Ireland? And Irish scholars in general seem to be sort of avoiding this topic. I saw Bieler, Kortje, Kjörnken, all they're all German that are interested in penance and Irish penitential books. And I thought, well, okay, perhaps it's better that if not an Irishman does so, then a Dutchman will try to do so. At least you can understand my English, I hope. One of the reasons, though, I think that historians in the past, I'm, I'm not sure whether Irish historians in particular uh, uh, stayed away from the topic, is the explicit sexual context, contents of these works. And uh, if you look at the Irish, the old Irish penitential in, in, uh, in Bieler's work, uh, that was translated by, by Binchy uh, into English, except for the sexual explicit parts. That they were not translated into English, but into Latin. <laughs> okay, but uh, regarding the Irish uh, uh, character of the text, I think that is a bit too, 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 narrow, too narrowly, narrowly defined. And it's more accurate to employ the term insular in relation to most of these texts, because as we, as we shall see, many of the texts in questions in question are difficult to pin down geographically with precision, and they are all in various ways interconnected. And the pattern of connection suggests a world of intense contacts between Ireland, Wales, and Cornwall, and I think we should include Brittany here as well. Uh, Finian, for example, the author of an early penitential book, may have been from uh, Brittany, and clusters of early texts are found in admittedly, admittedly rather late uh, manuscripts from that region, but containing really very old 6th century Irish and other texts. The best known penitentials generally labeled Irish are those attributed to Finian, Columbanus, and Cumian. Um, and these works are preserved in a handful of manuscripts, all written in ecclesiastical centers on the European mainland particularly in northern France, southern Germany, uh, Salzburg and Gaul, and northern, northern Italy, Bobbio, and Burgundy. Cotti was able uh, to uh, identify a number of manuscripts of the so-called Second Synod of St. Patrick that Bieler had not known, but I think the most important discovery in this field since Bieler's edition has been Ludger Kurntgen's who established that a penitential preserved in the Bibliotheca Ambrosiana in Milan was not a 9th century re reworking of the 7th century Irish penitential of Comion, but actually its source. So we have to add, I think, the Penitentiale Ambrosianum to the early insular penitentials. Um, this text was known in Ireland in the 7th century, where Comian used it to compose his work on penance. A late 9th century penitential book, which I edited 10 years ago uh, under the name of the Penitentiale Vindobonense C, and I 
must apologize for the awful t- uh, names that we give to these texts, but it's hard to find uh, uh, really attractive names for those kind of texts. So normally they're named to the, uh, after the library where the manuscript is being kept, or we come to other strange titles. And I- I've written most of them down, uh, but it makes discussing these texts sometimes not very easy. But this text, the Vindabonensis C, contains a group of ten canons, uh, and I could not identify the, the, the sources of ten of, of the canons of this work. And these canons mostly relate to matters of priestly purity and have some connection to the additions I found in simple Frankish uh, penitential texts of this kind from the uh, from 7th and 8th century. Um, and these additions in these early simple Frankish uh, penitentials um, stem mostly from insular sources. So I think the unidentified canons from the Vindabonensis C, uh, by showing a remarkable resemblance to two Irish penitentials, the Penitentiale Bihutianum and the Old Irish Penitential, um, and this this resemblance is mostly in, this, in, in you can find it mostly in the form that they essential several forms of contact with women. So it's it's, it's, it's contact with women. Women is a problem. Uh, the first canon, for example, assigns a period of 70 days of fasting as penance for a priest who has been defiled uh, by milk of a woman, the text says. Lactum mulieris. Uh, perhaps you, it should be read tactum, so touched by a woman, by touching a woman. Um, another one prescribes 40 days of penance for touching a woman's breasts. And the correspondences with the Bigotianum and the Old Irish Penitential suggest that these ten canons were not a product of the imagination of a 9th century compiler of the Vindemolensis C, but might have been adopted from an earlier insular source for which they are then the sole remaining witness. So that would mean that we have here a trace of, another, of an otherwise unknown insular penitential. But apart from these two texts, there's actually nothing substantial to add to Koch's discussion of the dissemination of Irish penitential in the article that I mentioned. There has been some debate about the Irish nature of particular texts, notably the penitential of Finian, the Bihutianum, as well as about the penitential of Columbanus, but in general his views are still valid. Where things have been moving a lot is in the interpretation of what actually was, of what penance actually was, and the context in which it was applied. The sharp dichotomy that I mentioned between private and public penance that historians took for granted for a long time has been called into into question by scholars such as Mary Mansfield uh, for the later medieval period, the 13th century and later on, uh, by Mike de Jong and by Sarah Hamilton, um, who stressed, all of them, the diversity of penitential practice. So in theory, sometimes you find this distinction between public and private, particularly in the later period. But if you look at what people are doing in practice, it's a, it's a much more complicated world, actually. The distinction between two major forms of penance, one public and the other private, existed mostly in the minds of bishops, worrying about the proper ways of doing penance. Uh, and we find that discussion, for example, in the Carolingian age, age, but they do not reflect actual behavior. The question of who was actually affected by views on sin and penance, as expressed in these penitential books, 
has also provoked a lot of discussion. Franz Kerf and Sandy Murray questioned the prevailing view that penitential books were widely used in a pastoral setting. They argued that penitential books did not reach parish priests, but that their use was generally confined to bishops who employed them foremost in the legal context of an episcopal court. Their minimalist views have, however, incited a response from David Backrack and myself, among others. For Ireland, the question about the uses of penance in a secular setting has been discussed by Coleman Etchingham, who argued that the rules that we find in penitential books did not apply to the laity in general, but only in the case of the monarch, the dependence of monastic institutions living under a quasi-penitential regime. Catherine Swift, however, following up suggestions by Thomas Charles Edwards, Edwards, sees much more room for priests judging sinners in a local context. What are, then are we to make of the situation in Ireland before the Peregrini set out for Francia and beyond, and, as we may suppose, took their pen- penitential books and practices with them? A group of 6th century texts, generally regarded as precursors of penitential handbooks, and edited as as such by Bieler, provide information on the earliest instances of ecclesiastical discipline in the British Isles. They are known by their modern titles as the Preface of Gildas on Penance, the Excerpts from a Book of David, the Synod of North Britain, and the Synod of the Grove of Victory. It is not always clear, however, whether these texts address monks, clergy, or the laity. Some, like the Preface of Gildas, have a strong monastic outlook, while others, like the excerpts from the Book of David, mostly address clerical failings, but also, to a certain extent, censure lay behavior. These texts seem to reflect a world in which monastic and episcopal forms of authority coexisted, and penance was mostly used as a tool for enforcing ecclesiastical discipline, rather than as a means for helping individual sinners distressed about their salvation. The Penitentiale Ambrosianum, um, the one that was recently discovered, if I may put it that way, has a much clearer pastoral outlook. It has a strong monastic flavor, as demonstrated, for example, by its structure, which is based on the eight principal vices originally originally formulated by Evagrius of Pontus and subsequently promulgated in the West by John Cassian. The Ambrosianum prescribes a specific protocol for dealing with sinners in which the sinner is first urged to do penance for a sin, and if he does not uh, comply to that advice, disciplinary tools such as exclusion from the table are to be applied in order to put pressure on a sinner to do penance. Such an exclusion from a communal meal fits a monastic or clerical community, I think. But this monastic outlook notwithstanding, the text addresses bishops, priests, virgins, widows, clerics, and lay people. And the canons that are specifically addressed to laymen, however, in contrast to the other texts, do not display the same careful protocol for approaching sinners. The other early insular penitential, the one composed by Finian, and I have a picture of the Syngol manuscript containing uh, that, that text. It's the earliest and only, uh, actually the only text uh, that contains uh, Finian's work, written in this is the, third, the second quarter of the ninth century 
in Senghal. This manuscript, the text is, of course, a lot older. This text, the uh, penitential opinion, is also characterized by a rather sophisticated approach to sin, as is demonstrated, for example, by its censuring sinful thoughts rather than deeds. And once more, such a nuanced approach seems to have been reserved for the clergy. For laymen and laywomen, sinful intentions were less serious, because, as Finian puts it, he is a man of this world. His guilt in this world is lighter, but the reward in the world to come is less. In dealing with the sexual life of the married, Finian sets a high standard. The text not only forbids any form of sexual activity outside of marriage, it also denies any form of remarriage and prescribes continence if a marriage does not bring forth children uh, because, uh, as according to Finian, uh, the wife would be barren. Uh, she's an uxor sterilis, as he says it. I'm not sure whether, how he knows who is uh, incapable of producing children, whether it's the woman or the man, but apparently he thinks it's the woman in general. The fact that no penances are prescribed in relation to these rules about marriage indicate that this actually was more of a model for a Christian marriage rather than rules to be enforced in practice. Both these penitentials, Finians and Ambrosianum, envisage laymen and laywomen doing penance for their sin. But it's hard to imagine that at such an early stage there existed some kind of regular form of lay confession in the insular world in the 6th century. It has been suggested that the laymen addressed in these penitential books were closely bound to the monastery and were in fact almost exclusively dependent monastic tenants. Yet I think there might be another group of lay people targeted in these texts. Since many canons targeting laymen are concerned with forms of violence and with adultery, therefore with acts that are of high social relevance and that when knowledge of them became public required some form of public satisfaction, one may infer that ecclesiastical penance could function as an alternative means of settling conflicts between lay people. And this uh, interpretation is corroborated by the content of the canons. Finian, for example, rules that the layman who struck his neighbor and caused some form of bleeding should not only fast for 40 days, but should also compensate his neighbor by giving him a certain amount of money whereas no compensation is required from a cleric committing such an offence. And the priests or monks uh, were in a position to negotiate in specific conflict, oh, sorry, that priest or monks were in a position to negotiate in specific conflicts is suggested, for example, by the life of Columba. Uh, Adovnan, the author of the life, relates how a certain Livran, and we've heard the story twice to, uh, in this conference, I'm afraid. Pamela O'Neill went into, it, into much more detail than I do, and Duncan O'Snedden, Duncan Snedden did this this morning. Uh, but the story about Livran, uh, I will be very brief about that. After having killed a man, he did penance on Iona and was reconciled with his victim's kins, kin through ne- negotiations by Columba himself. And uh, there's a lot to say about that case, but I'll leave it, and I have discussed that case also elsewhere. That the Ambrosiana might have functioned in a similar context is suggested by its discussion of a man having sex with a virgin or a widow. In such a case, the culprit should do penance for a year and seek reconciliation with the woman's family by paying the bride price as established in the law. 
Hence, in cases of lay people, reconciliation with the offended party apparently was part of the penitential process. While the author of the Ambrosianum remains unknown, uh, and the author of the Finian's penitential, a shadowy figure, I think, uh, the third important insular penitential, penitential was written by our friend Columbanus. Columbanus composed a penitential book probably from loose files. There are different parts in that work. Uh, and in the form in which it has been preserved, it also contains material added after Columbanus's death in 613. Columbanus probably composed the work after he left Ireland, so in a strict sense, this is not an insular text. But, it, if, but I want to regard it anyways as such because it comes from an insular context. And in this work, Columbanus clearly envisages three groups of sinners, monks, clerics, and laymen. There is an interesting difference in the way sins with serious uh, social consequences uh, that are dealt with with regard to these three groups. Clerics and lay people are always required to compensate the offended party. Monks uh, are never. A cleric uh, or a layman who killed his neighbor must first go into exile, and after his return he should see seek reconciliation with the victim's parents and assume the rule of their son, fulfilling their wishes. In sua radens vicem parentibus occisi pietatis et officii. So he has to take the place of the, the, the man who he had killed. And the other, and, and the other uh, uh, citation that I have here uh, is about adultery, as you can see. Uh, and what does he have to do? Dans in super pretium pudicitiae maritio uxoris violatis. So he has to pay the price of shame to the man of the uh, woman that he violated. So, again, the kind of uh, compensation that he has to pay, and that is all part and parcel of the penitential uh, process, I would say. So, for Christians living in the world, reconciliation with an offended party seems to have been of uh, greater importance in the penitential process than for monks living in the seclusion of their monasteries. There's also a remarkable correspondence between the sections devoted to monks, clerics, and the laity in Columbanus's penitential. The earlier insular texts speak about the laity only in the specific context of sins that have clear social repercussions. As I said, violence, theft, and adultery. Columbanus, however, adds an entire range of other transgressions and actually addresses the same offenses regardless of whether he is dealing with monks, clerics, or the laity. He is the first, for example, to assign a specific penance for masturbation, drunkenness, or participating in pagan festivals in a lay context. And although the penances for laymen and women assigned by Columbanus are lighter than those for monks and clerics, in principle he demanded that lay people model their life on that of the monk. And this raises the question how Columbanus envisaged his penitential to be used. Jonas speaks about Columbanus's attractions of a great many converts, and particularly, as I already mentioned, the medicamenta penitentiae, the remedies of penance, would have drawn many to his new foundations. And one can imagine that Columbanus's penitential was being employed in relation to aristocratic families 
who sought close contact with the charismatic holy man. To, and that would then explain that he got all this land and was able to found all these monasteries. To judge by his penitential, Columbana set high standards for, man, for members of such circles who wished to be associated with his foundations. His confrontation with Theodoric II and Brunhild, uh, the Queen Mum, demonstrates that he was willing to uphold such demands even when confronted with royal anger. The last influential insular, insular penitential written in Latin was composed by Cumion. Here we have Cumion. This is a, a collection in five books, so this is a 10th or 11th century uh, canon law con collection, and you can see here six authorities. Uh, on the top left, Smaragdus. In the middle, we have Arcumian, Pinufius, Eugenius. In the middle below, it's your Patrick, I would say. He's called Paterius here, but that must be Patrick. Uh, and Anastasius there. And I will now zoom in on our friend Cumian. Um, possibly the same person who around the year 633 wrote a famous letter to the abbot of Iona regarding the proper date of Easter. As already mentioned, Cumian's penitential was based on Ambrosianum, a fact that explains its monastic outlook. It is hard to establish which sinners are addressed by this work. It contains rules for all Christians, although the severity of penance is adapted to the sinner's position in society. Some canons seem more geared towards a monastic environment, such as the canon censoring monastic, the monastic vices of Arcadia, Langor, Tristitia, sadness, or Jactantia, vain glory. But it is also striking that these more monastic vices are dealt with very briefly. Other clauses discuss the life of the married and therefore address laymen and laywomen. Often, however, Cumion does not distinguish clearly between clerics, monks, or laypeople. His penitential is similar to Columbanus's work in that it seems to demand that the same conduct from these three groups. Yet it is often unclear to which group exactly its clauses are addressed. And that might suggest that, again, this text functioned in a context where such distinctions were rather fluid, as, for example, in a situation where lay people associated themselves closely with the monastic center. Now, if we try to draw some conclusions from this brief discussion of Irish penitential texts, I think it seems, it's, it's safe to conclude that all of the fully developed penitentials that I talked about, the one of Finian, Columbanus, Cumion, and the Penitentiale Ambrosianum have a strong monastic component. They all deal with sinning monks, clerics, and lay people. There is, however, a certain contrast between sins attributed to monks and those attributed to clerics and lay people. Whereas the former are concerned mainly with controlling the vices as a means of attaining perfection, the latter are concerned with diffusing social tensions and seeking reconciliation between conflicting parties. I see no reason to suppose that these books were used in the context of secular priests hearing confession. All elements indicate that they functioned in a context to which monks were central and clerics and laity more peripheral. And these groups of uh, three groups of, of lay folk seem to be particularly acknowledged in the text. Monastic tenants, people entangled in serious social conflicts who sought ecclesiastical mediation, 
And finally, aristocrats in search of close ties with holy men. And some of these categories could, of course, overlap. It is useful to see this opening up of monastic penitential practices, and in particular the recourse to ecclesiastical mediation in resolving complicated social conflicts. Uh, It's not very useful to see that as private penance, I think, as opposed to public penance. Nobody at the time thought in such categories. It's only modern historians who were searching for the origins and legitimation of current practices who labeled these forms of penance private penance. And it is striking that Columbanus ran into trouble on several issues with Merovingian bishops, but that penance was never an issue. And this indicates that continental bishops did not see his handling of sin, confession, and penance as something radically new. Columbanus brought insular texts with him when he arrived on the continent, which must have guided his dealings with sinners, but they do not appear to have disturbed ecclesiastical authorities in Gaul or northern Italy. If we want to investigate what happened to Columbanus' rulings regarding sinners, we can look at a particular family comprising eight penitential texts which, can, which are labeled the simple uh, Frankish penitential. That's the early generation building on the work of Columbanus. But what they do, they drew, they drew upon Columbanus' penitential but combined its regulations with conciliar legislation. And the unproblematic way in which rulings from a handbook for confession were combined with canons pronounced by late antique conciliar meetings or the Merovingian Provincial Synod of Auxerre suggests that such regulations were not regarded as fundamentally different. To the canon adopted from Columbanus regarding manslaughter by a cleric, the simple Frankish penitentials add a canon from the Council of Ancyra regarding accidental killings. Another canon from this council, which discusses several form of divina- forms of divination, was also included in this group of texts. The canon forbidding festivities on the 1st of January was adopted from the Council of Auxerre. It is striking that these early Frankish penitentials rely mainly on that section of Columbanus' penitential, which is concerned with sins committed by the clergy. They seem to be aimed particularly to discipline clerics, although the fact that many of the canons do not specify whether the sinner is of clerical or lay status recalls the fluidity that we observed in such matters in Columbanus' penitential. As such, the simple Frankish penitentials linked up with two movements in the Merovingian church aiming at a renewal of Christian life one initiated by Columbanus, and another somewhat earlier uh, Burgundian reform movement, which culminated in two major councils in Macon and the diocesan synod of Auxerre. So there was no penitential wasteland, I think, into which Columbanus entered, but there was also already a very thriving uh, ecclesiastical reform uh, uh, going on at the time. The clauses from the simple Frankish penitentials were often combined with those of Cumian and of Theodore, the 7th century Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Theodore's work is excellent in five traditions, which probably reflects a somewhat different genesis compared to that of the other penitential books. The existing versions appear to have originated from pupils' report of the Archbishop's teachings. Bede speaks highly of the school that Theodore and his companion Hadrian established in Canterbury, 
and is likely to have been this context in which the different traditions of his penitential sentences, often mixed with other authoritative statements, originated. These three traditions, comprising the simple Frankish penitentials, Cumian and Theodore, were first combined in a highly influential work known as the Excarpsus Cumiani, discussed here by Elaine uh, Pereira Farrell. Um, and I have a slide of that as well. So this is Cumian's work. This is the Excarpsus Cumiani. Um, in a very early manuscript, uh, now in Copenhagen, written in northern France in the early 8th century. There is evidence to suppose that this penitential book was composed in the northern French monastery of Corby in the second quarter of the 8th century, and that the Anglo-Saxon missionary and church reformer Boniface was somehow implicated in the enterprise. The Excarpsus was often transmitted together with the influential canon law collection known as the Vetus Gallica, a text that was reworked in Corby in the same period. The combination of this penitential book with the canon law collection stresses one of its main characteristics, the concern for ecclesiastical hierarchy and authority. The Excarpsus is not the only penitential book written in the 8th century which demonstrates this concern for authority. Other books combining the same set of sources, the so-called tripartite penitentials, demonstrate by the ways in which they present their material a similar concern. Most of them originate from the region of northern France, where apparently such concerns for authority were rife. A remarkable number of penitential books composed in the second half of the 8th century combine different traditions. Sometimes, as in the tripartites in gold penitential, uh, these different traditions will be presented alongside one another. So we have first a series of canonical uh, sentences, as they call it, then Comian, and then Theodore. The author of a penitential known as the Pintentiale Capitula Judiciorum, of which I have the beginning here, also in a, a single manuscript, uh, a text that drew on the tripartite single penitential, made the differences between the three traditions even more clear by juxtaposing them for each offense. Um, if you look at this slide, you can see there is a judicium cumiani, a canonicum judicium, judicium cumiani, and again a judicium cumiani. So it's it tries to juxtapose the same sentences about the same topics in, 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 right after one another, thereby clearly making, uh, 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 making visible the, the, the differences of interpretations of these three texts. For the case of manslaughter and murder, for example, uh, this text first presented three sentences from simple Frankish penitentials, uh, then followed by nine from Theodore and then four from Cumian. The rich diversity in penitential judgments that thus became evident by works as the Penitentiale Capitulia Judiciorum could also raise eyebrows. The Excarpsus Cumiani had already left out some canons because they did not conform with the stricter outlook of other traditions. And this argument can, uh, can be made, although a full analysis of the choices that a compiler made uh, has not been attempted yet. But as we have heard, Elaine Pereira Farrell is now in the process of conducting just this kind of research. Thus, the compiler, for example, left out Cumian's relatively lenient approach towards boys having sex with animals, an offense for which Cumian had assigned dependence of only one year, 
and instead Kampala included only Theodore's canon, sentencing such a sinner to 15 years of penance. Quite a difference, I would say. Other compilers, building on the Excarptus, for example, the author of the Penitentiale Finde Bonense, written in Salzburg at the end of the 8th century, reintroduced a number of canons that the Excarptus had left out. So the things that he left out were then put into the text again, anew. And the variety in approach that transpires in these texts and the increasing number of penitential books that were written in the later 8th century, mainly in the northern and eastern regions of the Frankish kingdom, testifies to a lively interest in penitential matters in the second half of the 8th century. The manuscript transmission of some of these texts is remarkably rich. The Excarpsus Cumiani is excellent in over 20 manuscripts dating from the 8th and 9th centuries, and eight extant manuscripts contain the Penitentiale Capitula Judiciorum. The increase in the production of these texts and in their dissemination that we can observe from the second half of the 8th century, contrasting strongly with the much more limited manuscript tradition of the Irish penitential books, existing only in one or two manuscript copies, must surely be related to the program initiated by the Carolingian kings and their court to promote religious life in their kingdom, an effort that is known as the Carolingian Renaissance or Carolingian Reforms. These new penitentials were more clearly aimed at influencing lay behavior, unlike the Irish texts that, that, as we have seen, were reaching out to, uh, to the laity, but were always more geared to the life of monks and clerics. The catalogues of religious practices that were condemned as being pagan or superstitious, or the detailed discussions of the life of the married, are a case in point. We also have evidence in Episcopal statutes, as well as in priest exams, that priests were supposed to possess penitential books, and inventories of country churches do indeed show that such was the case. And this all seems to suggest that the practice of confessing one's sins and doing penance for them was no longer radiating from specific monastic centers out towards the laity, but that from the second half of the 8th century, confession and penance became more and more a part of regular Christian life. A Christian life that became, to an ever larger extent, ruled by written codes in this period. It was in this period that, in the words of Julia Smith, ideologues at the Carolingian court set out to establish a comprehensive code of conduct for the laity and a firm place for them within the Christian church. Texts were increasingly concerned with the formation of a Christian, how he had to behave and how he was involved in ecclesiastical ritual. As a consequence, important social events such as baptism, marriage and funeral were more and more given a scripted liturgical form. The concerns of Charlemagne, for example, for the proper forms of baptism led to an explosion of texts that discussed the liturgy of baptism. In the field of penance, we see a similar increase in texts that were attempting to help priests in their task. The Carolingian stress on authority had the consequence of restricting the hearing of confession to the priesthood, more so than it had been before. And liturgical ordinances were added to penitential books, defining the proper liturgical form for this ritual. So the Carolingian stress on authority and hierarchy Led to a, also, on the other hand, led to a discussion of the nature of the authority of penitential handbooks themselves. And this came to a head in the Five Carolingian Reform Council of the year 813, 
which were convened in Mainz, Chalon, Tours, Reims, and all at the behest of the aging emperor in order to debate the state of the Franks' church. Three of these councils debated the authority of the text with which a penitent was to be judged. In the same three councils, the bishops agreed that Christians who had sinned in public were to perform public penance. And that was always seen by historians as the definition of public versus private penance. But what exactly should be understood in this context as, in, as public is a moot point. And it is arguable that it, that it regarded only those sins that the laity was particularly susceptible to, according to early insular penitential books. Adultery, murder, and other forms of behavior that cause social tensions. In the penitentials of insular origin, which we discussed, some form of compensation to the offended party was part and parcel of the process of penance. In the early Carolingian penitentials that adopted many canons from the insular predecessors, this aspect of comp compensation is no longer that apparent. This might indicate that in the second half of the 8th century, when confessing your sins was becoming part of the regular Christian life in the Carolingian world, although we should not exaggerate that, there are rules that you should uh, take communion at least three times a year, and taking communion is, is very often uh, related to, to doing penance, to, do, to confess, confess your sins. Um, but I think the range of sins for the laity had been significantly expanded, and reconciliation with the offended party had therefore become less prominent in the practice of penance. And this called for re renewed stress on the public aspects of doing penance, at least in certain areas of the Carolingian world, and it was in this period, I would argue, that secret penance and its public counterpart were born. Insular text and attitude certainly contributed to this process, as did, oh, sorry, uh, as did Columbanus uh, and his foundations of Luxeuil and Bobbio. But nevertheless, Walker's statement with which this paper began is in need of some qualification. Columbanus and other Irish peregrini and wandering insular penitential texts did not single-handedly transform a late antique practice of public penance into the modern practice of private penance. They did, however, contribute substantially to the developments that took place in the field of penitential practice in this period. Developments that were further accommodated and supported by the Carolingian rulers. One cannot conclude that Columbanus saved Western civilization, or even invented, invented and stimulated private penance. But that he and his fellow countrymen did contribute to the development of a code of conduct for clerics and lay Christians alike cannot be denied. Whether we have to be thankful for this is another matter. Thank you for your attention.